to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, the radio show all about traveling like a boss by being your own boss. Stay tuned for weekly interviews featuring guests that have built their own online businesses. If you would like to have access to our entire back catalog, visit travellikeabosspodcast.com for instant access. And here's your host, Johnny FD. Hey everyone, this is Johnny and welcome to episode 142 of the Travel Like a Boss podcast. I'm here with Lauren Hom from homsweethom.com. Hello. It kind of rhymes too, I like it. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I tried to get a hom.com, but it's already taken. It's a, man, a men's underwear brand. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> completely off topic. Uh, so we are in Chiang Mai at Lauren's Sweet Loft. Yep. I like it. And... <laughs> This is actually our second time trying to record because I messed up on the first. My battery died uh, and we lost the whole file. But we talked about such cool things besides just her journey with design and making money while traveling. But we got into everything. We got into like being Asian American as an entrepreneur. So let's just kind of dive in and try to recap something we talked about. Yeah, sounds good. Round two. Okay. I like it. So uh, the very first thing uh, is you have been very, very successful in kind of the, the design world. Uh, the uh, like episode cover of this uh, kind of is going to illustrate come, you know, some of your art lettering. Uh, I spent probably hour making this cover, even though normally it only takes me <laughs> two minutes because I normally just throw something up. I don't really care. Or actually my editor, Anthony, just normally just makes mm-hmm. something. Yeah. But I wanted to make this one like decent. <laughs> so I hope you approve. Uh, so that's some, kind of the, some of the stuff you do. But you've also had really big clients. Uh, so looking at your website, I've had you've had on Google, Time mm-hmm. Magazine, Microsoft, AT&T, Time Out New York, YouTube as your clients. Yeah, it's been pretty amazing. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, but you started as as you as you mentioned in one of your talks, your lunch talks, which I'll have a link to, uh, from kind of nowhere, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I didn't even ever have any intentions of getting into the design world. I was always kind of right on the cusp because I was advertising and marketing in school. Um, And so I chose that because, you know, like you mentioned, growing up Asian American, uh, my parents were supportive of me doing creative things, but also like the, I'd say, overshadowing like doubt was like, can she make money doing it? And I know that comes from a good place because, you know, no parent wants to see their kid struggling. And so the choice to go into marketing and advertising, creative advertising was kind of this like intersection between what's going to pay the bills and like what had a pretty solid trajectory and uh, what also was going to be like creative. And so I did that uh, and it was fine. But yeah, these like me ending up as an illustrator was never really the plan. Um, I happened to launch a couple like clever side projects that got my work circulating around the internet. And, you know, slowly I, I never had any intention to get paid for it, but slowly, you know, as my work went around, I'd get, you know, a magazine here and there or like a, you know, big brand being like, hey, like, we like what you made. Can you make something like that for us? It's it's not that crazy of a thought. Um, and then luckily over, I'd say the first year I got my job, my illustration career kept creeping up and up and up till it kind of, you know, I knew I was going to have to make a choice eventually, but it came really fast. And uh, now I'm an illustrator. <laughs> I like it. Thanks. And uh, if any of you guys are watching this video on YouTube, this is episode 142. Uh, just go on YouTube, look for Johnny FD. And you can see Lauren is a very cool girl. Uh, <laughs> some other girl I had mentioned when we had, uh, when she spoke at the coffee club, that you are the trend. You are like what people think 
you know, like let's say someone that works for Microsoft or sure. even at Google, you know, they might be um, out of touch. They're, you know, in their 40s or 50s, they're a programmer or something. And, you know, they probably don't know what's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so they see someone like you and then they're like, okay, so she is what is cool right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that was kind of by accident or do you think that's like, are you always looking for the next trend or like, how does that, how does that mm. work? So you're trying to ask me if I'm a trendsetter. Yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, that's a funny comment. I think that, I don't know, aesthetically, like, I mean, I spent the last seven years in New York, which is kind of like the epicenter of, I don't know, fashion and kind of culture and kind of everything that's happening. Uh, as I've been traveling, it's so funny because, like, I was in, like, Romania, for example, uh, in the spring, and they were saying that, like, they're, like, a couple years, like, a, maybe, like, a year behind, like, what the normal trends are, and, like, things just hit different parts of the world, like, from mainstream Western culture differently, and New York just happens to be an epicenter for that, and so, I don't know, I honestly think that my my trendiness is probably just a product of absorbing so much information from the internet, and I think a lot of the way that we dress and the, our just general aesthetics are just totally subconscious, we don't even realize why we do what we do, um, and so, yeah, probably just a product of being, like, in the epicenter of New York City culture. And as you mentioned in one of your talks, you know, you are into kind of like, I don't want to say nerdy internet <laughs> memes, but like it, it is kind of a, a dorky thing, right? Totally. I mean, uh, my position is always the internet is fucking incredible. <laughs> uh, and yeah, like if you, I definitely like a lot of dorky stuff. I like a lot of like, I guess, traditionally cool stuff. Like it's just kind of a, kind of a mix. The cool thing about the internet is that you could go into any of those corners and like find your people, which is, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's changed so much because, like, if you grew up in, like, let's say Iowa twenty mm-hmm. years ago before the internet, or even ten years ago, oh and you had a certain style, you liked a certain mm-hmm. thing, you just couldn't ever meet anyone else who liked it. Exactly. And you just felt so alone. You know, maybe maybe like once a year you can go to some convention for whatever you're into. Yep. But now with the internet, you can literally be connected to these people twenty four seven. Absolutely. I mean, look at the digital, how the digital, digital nomad community has come together, especially here in Chiang Mai. Like, without the internet, that would be like word of mouth. Isn't that crazy? Well, I mean, it, it's like even now, even with the internet, I, like it's still a lot of it is kind of word of mouth. Where mm-hmm. you know somebody had to tell me about the four hour work week, and then somebody had to tell me right. about. You know, go to, you should go to Chiang Mai, even though all that information is on the internet. You have the recommendation from a friend. Yeah. So yeah. I think it just, it lets it travel faster now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, I think all trends and all, you know, fun, cool places mm-hmm. are still connected with people. Absolutely. Like, there's a reason why they're popular. There's a reason why they're trendy, for sure. I like it. So, one question would be is, do you think that we just got lucky, you know, like falling to these trends? I and mean, for example, a lot of people, you know, say like, oh, Johnny, you know, you, you know, uh, you got lucky that Chiang Mai is this new hotspot mm-hmm. because you just happened to be, you know, blogging about it. Like you were one of the first ones to blog about it as a digital nomad. Mm-hmm. And do you think there was a chance that I could have just wasted, you know, three years of my life trying to convince people how cool Chiang Mai is that they should come, it, you know, follow and then nobody wanted to come? I mean, yeah, I think I, when we were talking last, I told a similar story about, I, I think it, Chiang Mai is cool and like you just got the word out there. And yes, you were one of the first to do it. With hand lettering, I feel similarly like it was cool and I think it would have been a thing regardless, but I just happened to get into hand lettering, you know, three and a half years ago as opposed to now. I had a friend ask a very honest question and he was like, do you think you would have found the same success had you started now with like the same trajectory, the same skill set versus three years ago when it wasn't as hot? It was still like a hot thing and an up and coming thing. But I think kind of like what I mentioned before, being 
in New York City, uh, especially in the design world, was very advantageous in the sense that like you really are at the forefront of what everyone's doing. Uh, so I, I definitely did like strike at an opportune moment for sure, and like you know made my stake in hand lettering the same way you made your stake in the Chiang Mai uh, market. And yeah, I think it's a combination of both. Okay. Sure. So I'm curious. So advice to somebody just starting on the design mm-hmm. world. So let's say you know they're just starting right now. They want they want to get design. Uh-huh. They think it's cool. Do you think that they should kind of follow a, a proven blueprint and, and start, you know, learning things like hand lettering, things that people already want, things that are already cool? Or would you recommend that they, you know, f- I don't know, just do something that no one else is doing yet? You know, I I think I'm gonna say a combination again. Like if yes, like you know, flat 2D illustration is cool right now. Like uh, hand lettering is cool. There's a lot of stuff that's very in, and you know, trends come and go. The same way with fashion, I think that my core advice would be you have to enjoy doing it. Like if you don't like hand lettering, don't do it just because you think it's going to make you a quick buck. Like it's, if you enjoy it, like it's good to have it in your skill set. But the cool thing about design and illustration and creative stuff is that we do draw influence from a bunch of different trends, styles, people. uh, But at the end of the day, like the way it mixes up in your brain is different than anyone else's. So I would say, yes, I think it's, it is smart for designers to pay attention to what is trendy, but it, than to make it their own and turn it into something they enjoy. Okay. I like it. So for those who don't actually know what hand lettering is, <laughs> can you just briefly describe Absolutely. it? I always forget that because I spent so long in like a little bubble of designers in New York. So hand lettering is a like niche of illustration where basically I only draw words. It sounds crazy. If you had told me, you know, when I was a kid that someday you would get paid to draw words, I'd just kind of cock my head to the side and be like, what? Like, I didn't even know, all I knew was artist. Artist was a job. I didn't even know what graphic design was. Uh, so yeah, I specialize in drawing different styles of lettering for different words. So the best way I can describe it is I give personality to words. And that's really important when you're doing an advertising campaign or, you know, even a t-shirt brand, right? Like, if you have a really masculine macho t-shirt brand, you're not going to write your logo in, like, super curly, swirly lettering. And so it's kind of, I always describe hand lettering as... The writing is what you're saying and lettering is how you're saying it. So you could say hello to someone 10 different ways, different tonalities of your voice, right? And so I think visually that's what hand lettering does. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when I was looking at it, and actually when I was creating this cover, I was like... <laughs> I can't wait to see this cover. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not going to be as, as exciting as, as you, got, you imagine it to be. <laughs> but um, when, I was, when I was doing it, I was like, why would I hand letter something? Why would I like draw these letters by mm-hmm. hand when I can just use a cool font? Totally. And then I realized that those cool fonts are probably copies of somebody's hand lettering. They're probably derivatives of that too. And I mean, there is something to be said. Typeface design and font design is extremely hard. Uh, and it's kind of, it's definitely related to lettering. Someone did draw each of those characters individually and then program them together in a set, right? Uh, so it definitely is all related. I think the draw of hand lettering is that you get something custom and, you know, tailored to your exact needs and also no one else can use it. So the exclusivity, I think, is a big yeah, thing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, think, I think at the end of the day, the reason, as much as I like Canva because it's so easy mm-hmm. for people like me who don't have a design background to make a decent looking yeah. cover real quickly. Which is awesome. <laughs> which I think is needed. Yes. Uh, I also realize. I can tell right away if somebody has used Canva because everything looks exactly the same. Exactly. Even though it looks nice. And I think that there should be that base level. Like no one should have to suffer if they don't know much about design. You should still be able to make something that looks nice. The same way, you know, Wix or Squarespace helps people make decent looking, you know, websites. I think that 
just because you're not super knowledgeable and it doesn't mean you should have crappy design. But yeah, there definitely is like a next level that comes with, you know, getting a custom site built or getting custom hand lettering for your products. For sure. Um, I mean, I guess speaking of which, like Shopify is the e-commerce platform Mm -hmm. I use and easy to use themes, everything's drag and drop. It's kind of like the square space of Mm -hmm. website building. But I can also tell right away if it's a Shopify store versus if somebody, you know, had like a bigger company, they had Mm -hmm. a big budget for a custom site. Right. It can give personality to that site. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's why design plays a much bigger role in, you know, even like e-commerce, anything, because all those little steps like that differentiate you from your competition can make the difference. Because it's an experience, right? You don't have that like in-person, like sale, like face-to-face sales anymore. You All you have is like your branding and your website experience. And it's really it. You're writing. Like that's like, that's all you got. <laughs> so it's so, important. So let's talk about how have you been able to still make money while you're, tra- how you've been traveling? Because you've been traveling now for how long? I've been traveling since the end of January, 2016. So it's been almost a year. Oh my gosh. (laughs) 11 months. Wow. Yeah. 11 months. Yeah. So, uh, prior to leaving for this trip, I was working from home in New York city for about two, two and a half years. And I kind of woke up one morning and I was like, Hmm, like I can be anywhere in the world doing this. I had taken a couple trips, uh, before just like, you know, a couple weeks at a time and was able to work. And I realized that I could probably sustain it on the road because my clients didn't really care where I was. I was just turning in files digitally with the exception of, I would say like on-site murals and things like that. Uh, my, nothing about my work situation has changed since I left New York. Uh, I, so I teach, I have some passive income from Skillshare, Britain Coast, all these online, like it's kind of like you to me, online courses. Uh, but for the most part, I think I mentioned this in my last chat with you, but you know, because I've been able to circulate my work around the internet so frequently, uh, and kind of, you know, we, we, consume media so quickly like i've been able to like grasp grasp people's attention i do consistently book pretty big clients and so you know something could be a small project could be a thousand dollars but a big project could be thirty thousand dollars and you know for the last couple years i've kind of banked on getting two or three of those big projects to kind of tide me over and then supplement it with the smaller projects so i can kind of like a mix of doing bigger work and then passion projects and then you know smaller jobs just it allows me to do what I want to do. So it's been good. Yeah. I like that. And big congratulations for doing that. Thank you. I know there's like, there's some people out there who are like, you know, she's selling out to these big companies. I can't <laughs> believe she's doing, you know, lettering for like Microsoft mm-hmm. or something. These, you know, boring, big corporate companies. Totally. <laughs> but on my like point of view, I'm like, you know what? That should be what everyone, I don't want to say is aiming for, but that really is like the pinnacle of success. If someone's willing to pay you $30,000 to do something, that means they like you. You have work. a valuable product then. I mean, that's, yeah, confirmation that you have a valuable product and service. And yeah, I mean, I think to that, it's such an interesting thing because the idea of an artist or a creative and money, they, they don't go together. People like, I think traditionally we have this idea that like, if you do art, you're just not going to make money. And my parents fed me that same narrative. You know, I was painting a mural in California a couple months ago and at elementary school and a kid came up to me and he was like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm painting this mural. And he was like, is that your job? And I was like, yeah, it's my job. And he just had this super confused look on his face because I think from a young age, we're just taught that art, writing, music are all kind of secondary. Like, you know, you do it as a hobby. And so for me, uh, yeah, I... The term selling out, I think I mentioned this last time, but, you know, in, in Austin Cleon, who's a designer turned like writer, he writes about, you know, selling out has a negative connotation, but 
the best thing a small business owner can do at the end of the day is put the sign sold out on his door. Whether you're a baker, whether you're you know, a, cl- a clothing store, if you sell out of your product, that means you're doing something right, right? And unfortunately, I mean, not unfortunately, like money is a big part of everyone's life. We need it to survive. Everyone wants to make it. And sure, some people could take like a, I think as long as for me, I'm not doing, you know, advertisements for like cigarette companies, that's fine. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 been able to give me the life that I want and it allows me to be more creative because in anything you do, when you have financial stability, it allows you to be your, the best version of yourself because we all know that there is not, there's no bigger like motivation or inspiration killer than bills nagging in the back of your mind. You know, it, it weighs on you. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely agree. And now you have the free time exactly. to be able to do side creative projects. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we talked about this last time too, but you know, the way my business works is that I can travel and I can do side projects because I have a creative manager back in Chicago. So I have an agent and uh, they manage all of the billing, negotiating, re- reading contracts, legal stuff. Like they manage every aspect of my business and I just do the drawing. And so, you know, I'm a big fan of paying people who know more than you do in certain areas to do what they do best. And, you know, they take anywhere from a 10 to 30% cut, which is a big chunk. And I had a friend you know, talked to me and he was like, you know, you could be making 30% more money. Why aren't you doing that? And, you know, the amount of opportunity cost and time it takes to vet a project, to send contracts, to review contracts, isn't really worth it. I'd rather, at the end of the day, I'd rather have more time than money. And especially being a digital nomad, what is the point of living in Thailand or Bali or some beautiful island if you can't enjoy the island, right? That's true. Like you could just have a pile of money on your island. That doesn't sound great. And a pile of paperwork. And a pile of paperwork. Totally. Yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> no. So at what point did you have it? Did you get an agent? And at what point do, would you recommend someone mm-hmm. get one? Uh, so I got an agent as I was transitioning from my full-time job to freelance. Uh, the reason I got an agent was because I was poking, you know, doing my normal internet stuff, stalking people, not creepily, but I was poking around my favorite designers' uh, websites, all very successful. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try to take a cue from them. What are they doing that I'm not doing? And like, what has really bumped them to this next level of success, bigger client work, you know, being able to sustain themselves. And I clicked on all of their about pages and noticed that they all had representation. And I was like, okay, what's, what's representation? How, how do I get this? And I started doing research and I realized, you know, you need to have a marketable portfolio. You need to have X, Y, and Z. You need to basically prove to an agent that you can make money so then they can make money from you. You're like a marketable product, right? Uh, and so I just did my research. I revamped my portfolio, uh, kind of put together a little spiel about myself, the awards I've, I had won, what I was trying to do, my background with a couple samples of my work and reached out to about 20, 30 agencies. I heard back from like four or five and ended up signing with one and they've been my agent ever since. So it is difficult to get one. Uh, it has to be the right fit, but I would recommend getting one if you do want to make design or illustration your full-time thing. If you have a unique style, um, you know, it's kind of having an agent is, I think, seen as kind of more of a specialty thing, I would say. Uh, yeah, I'd say if you want to get serious about making design or illustration your full-time thing and you also don't have a knack for the paperwork, because I know plenty of people who love doing that, who love kind of ins and outs of their business and I was doing that before on on my own and it just stressed me out to be honest okay I can see that so do your agents ever find you work or throw work your way definitely Um, so a part of what they do is they have their own portfolio website they do in-person portfolio showing so they'll go into agencies in the states and show our books Uh, my agents represent a roster of about 20 artists I want to say 
wide variety of styles, but all still kind of under the, you know, colorful contemporary umbrella. And yeah, I think I kind of think of an agency or a roster as like a family of artists that are all kind of related, but different. Uh, and the cool thing about having an agent is I found my agent because one of my favorite illustrators, uh, John Contino, he is repped by them. And so I reached out to them and I was like, if they're good enough for John, then they're, they're sure they're great for me. And so if, since we're all in the same family, if a job comes in for John or anyone else in the roster, and for some reason they can't take it, they'll pitch me instead. Uh, and so I've gotten a lot of trickle-down projects. I've gotten projects from existing contacts that they had. Both of them had uh, marketing backgrounds, the two guys who run the agency. So it's really just, yeah, having their expertise about how different industries work. And yeah, it's been great. <laughs> I like that. So, I mean, from that point of view, as like a as like a business point of view mm -hmm. financially it makes sense because you've now like they've paid you back that 30 percent by giving you more work that you never would have had in the first place mm -hmm. i like that and it's like a very abundance mindset we can help each other out exactly and that's an interesting point you bring up with a lot of things the scarcity mindset is so like negative and damaging to for business for relationships for anything because yeah there's the advice or the the number one question i'd say or one of the top questions i get is you know how do you like do you get enough work like you're you're so specialized and i think my my advice is always instead of looking at other letters as competition we, we need to look at it as community the same way in like the dropshipping community or any business there's plenty of work to go around like there people will always need art and i think it's all about how you position yourself and if you're smart about it there's plenty of work to go around yeah and if you have your niche you can dominate it and so their specializing niche. is actually a good thing because it actually i would say it ups the value of your product because there's less of it, right? If you're just a, you know, kind of jack of all trades, graphic designer who does websites and banners and all that stuff, that's good. And you can definitely carve out uh, a business for yourself. But with hand lettering, I think it's, I'm able to justify some of my prices because you can't get what I make from anywhere else. You can get something similar, but not exactly how I do it. I like it. Yep. <laughs> so uh, if you guys want to see some more of Lauren's work, she has a book out called Daily Dishonesty. Yes, I have two books. So Daily Dishonesty, uh, it's like an illustrated, it was one of my passion projects, actually, that got turned into a book, uh, which is pretty cool, like a 21-year-old getting a book deal. Just uh. And uh, so that's out. I actually, I told you my friend found it in my mall, <laughs> which, which is, is cool. crazy. Awesome. Yeah, uh, they're sold out now. Um, we asked the we went in and asked the woman if they had any more, and apparently that bookstore chain has them in Bangkok. So if you need a daily dishonesty book, you can go to Bangkok. Okay. And then I just came out with a new one. It's a, a year long guided like journal called Good Things Are Happening. It's actually right on my desk. I'll go pull it in a second. Ooh, okay. Uh, so that just came out, and yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's called like the it. ceiling. Can, can you grab it? Yeah, I absolutely. definitely want to hear it. Uh, so also aside from kind of that work. If you want to know more about her actual business, business, uh, she did a really good talk. Uh, I'll have a link to it below, but it was a lunch talk with designers. And that's where she broke down how this book started uh, and how she used a bad breakup to make $10,000 off yeah. her ex-boyfriend's tears. <laughs> a lot of cool things in there. But the, the reason why I don't want to repeat all of that on this, on this episode, even though I think it's very, very... like awe-inspiring is Thank because you. they can just watch that talk. So totally. um, show notes, episode 142 of the Chop Like Boss podcast. You can see it there. And she also gave um, kind of a similar expanded talk at the Nomad Coffee Club. So if you guys were in Chiang Mai last week, uh, you guys saw that. So very cool <laughs> book. Uh, if you guys are watching this on YouTube right now, <laughs> it's it's a physical book. It's actually, it's pretty long. How many pages is it? 
Uh, I don't know how many pages. So it's a guided journal. So there's 52 illustrations, one per week. And it's basically, it's called Good Things Are Happening. And it's just funny little, like, day makers, I like to call them. Uh, so yeah, late for work, but your boss isn't in yet. Like, kind of like, yes, moments. <laughs> and so, I mean, it was what I was talking about in the Nomad Coffee Club uh, talk is that a lot of the inspiration from my work comes from everyday life and these little, like, human moments that I grab onto. So you know, you mentioned the breakup. Everyone goes through breakups and knows what that feels like. And so my whole creative philosophy is, you know, when you draw from everyday human emotions, you actually have a really wide audience for your products because we all know, like, we all feel similar feelings, I suppose, right? So like a breakup, a 40-year-old lawyer could go through a breakup and feel similar feelings to a 13-year-old girl, right? <laughs> so it's it's very humanizing. And yeah. <laughs> Okay, I like it. And I, and I also feel like sometimes when we're on top of the world, we see like we feel like almost can't um, connect with other people. But when you when something's like down, mm-hmm. it feels like everybody understands that. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we I think we talked about this last time. Like bad feelings are actually yeah really relatable and like also good like motivation. Like it's even if something feels shitty, like it's that's energy and that's like uh you know you can channel it into into other things. Like you mentioned. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, one of the reasons why my income has grown so much this last year is because I had a bad breakup. And instead of wanting to you know, dive into doing something else, I just don't want to work. And I was mm-hmm. like, you know what? I need some time to heal. I need some time to get yes. over it. I don't want to date anyone else seriously until mm-hmm. then. Let me just do what I know how to do, which is work. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was probably like the catalyst uh, for you to like... I'm sure you were hustling hard before, but it kind of pushes you over the edge for sure. Yeah, definitely. So it's one of those uh, fun and fun things. Um, <laughs> so one thing that was really interesting that I had noticed the last time I sat with you mm-hmm. is that you are the first Asian girl, or at least definitely Asian American, right. that I've had a long conversation with, hung out with since I left California. Because every girl I've dated since I left eight years ago mm-hmm. has been Caucasian. Interesting. Is that a product of like traveling or? Well, I think I started dating like non-Asian girls mm-hmm. like my last year or two when mm-hmm. I was in, in LA. And was that like conscious choice or just kind of It was happened? definitely a conscious choice. Really? Yeah. Uh, so uh, growing up my whole life, yes. I just like, I'm, it's not that I refused to date white girls. I just convinced myself that I wasn't like interested. Mm-hmm. I remember describing to um, Maxim Magazine and every you know, month they had a centerfold and it was always a you know, beautiful white girl. Yes. And I just never even looked at it. I just flipped right through it and I was like, oh, I'm not into this. So interesting. Like, yeah. And I think part of me was like growing up very, like in a very Asian American household. Mm-hmm. All my friends were Asian American. Even though we lived in California, everybody yeah. was Asian. Like my school was like more than half Asian. Oh yeah. You find pockets for sure. Yeah. And all my friends were Asian. Um, and I just was convinced, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's not for me. And I don't know if it was because deep down I was insecure and I thought, you know what? I don't, I don't think anyone outside my race would even want to date me. So maybe I'm like, I'm just going to tell myself that's not what I'm into. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I don't know, but I definitely, I mean, I'm from California too. It's, it's a fairly diverse place, but yeah, I mean, my hometown was primarily uh, Caucasian and an Asian, I would say a little Hispanic. I was pretty much it, but yeah, I mean, moving to New York, you just get thrown into even more of a melting pot. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've, dated like a pretty wide variety of people but i've never i guess yeah i've never felt the same way where i was just like like honed in on like my people or like, so you're uh, half japanese half chinese half right? japanese half chinese yeah and 
your parents were completely okay with you getting outside your ass. Yes. So I told you the story last time. It was crazy. So I think this comes from my parents and their parents not reacting well to them getting together. So, I mean, most of you know, if you know a little world history, China and Japan historically do not get along. Uh, I think most like non-Chinese or Japanese people don't even realize how different our cultures absolutely. are. Absolutely. And that like historically, Chinese people and Japanese people hated each other. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, you know, my parents got together. My Japanese grandfather totally opposed, didn't even come to the wedding. Uh, wow. And so, yeah, when I, I told you the story, but when I was 13, uh, about to go into high school, my parents called me into their bedroom and sat me down and they were like, you know, you're, you're a teenager now. You're probably going to start dating soon. And we just wanted to let you know that you can date whoever you want, like black, white, Asian, Mexican, whatever. Like as long as they love you, we'll love them. And I, you know, didn't think anything of it at the time, but it wasn't until, I met people with with more conservative Asian parents who I, that I realized like holy shit my parents are super progressive. <laughs> yeah, because you Re- mentioned your awesome. your parents would prefer that you date a Taiwanese girl. They wanted me to marry a Taiwanese girl. They're like wanting to set me up with an arranged marriage. Is that still common in Taiwan? I don't know. I I mean I guess like part of it is there's huh. I'm sure there's a lot of Taiwanese girls that want American passports so they'll like marry like an Asian American oh. guy so then come here. But and, not for love, just like a transactional thing. Or? But I don't know. I like I didn't even get that far because I, I was automatically like, no, right. I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember. I I don't even know if I really dated any Asian American girls, like like Chinese American girls, mm-hmm. super seriously. Because um, I don't actually remember introducing them to anyone who actually spoke Chinese. Mm. So like I would kind of tiptoe outside my racial boundaries by dating like a Filipino girl. Or like a girl from like Hong Kong, right? Which is to me was like so different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but like my last girlfriend was South African mm-hmm. and we were together okay. for almost three years. Mm-hmm. And I told my parents before they ever met that I was dating an African girl. Just because I knew. accurate. Yeah. yeah uh, which was <laughs> somewhat accurate. Uh, because I knew that either way they were going to judge so I wanted to kind of shock them first uh-huh. and then have it not be as bad, I guess. I don't say bad. psychology. Yeah. <laughs> so they assumed I was dating a black girl and they were like pissed. They were like, you cannot date an African girl. Oh my God. And I was like, I'm, you know, I'm in love. This is, this is it. You gotta accept it. <laughs> and when they came to Thailand last, I think a year and a half ago for vacation mm-hmm. and they met her, they're like, oh, she's white. I'm like, yeah, she's South African. She's like Dutch background, mm-hmm. right? And they were like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> So, so it worked. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if they would have reacted like that if I had just said I'm dating a white girl. They might have been like, mm-hmm. no, you're not allowed to date a white girl. You have to date an Asian girl. I mean, who knows? And I mean, we talked about this the last time, but I think that parents tend to be very set in their ways. And like, they just, I know plenty of, yeah, Asian parents who are like, oh, you can date someone who's Asian. You can date someone who's white, but that's it. And that seems to be, I don't know where that comes from. But, you know, I think as, as the younger generation, as our parents' children, it's, our responsibility to call our parents out on their shit because uh, who else is going to do it, right? And I used to think like, oh, you know, like grandma or like mom and dad, like they're not going to be around for forever and maybe I should just let them like keep their peace. But I think it's it's worth having those conversations uh, because we talked about this, but traveling, especially like so my, my parents didn't travel, my grandparents didn't travel. Our generation, because travel is so much more accessible than ever, uh, financially, just technology-wise, we are exposed to so many more things, and I think we're more empathetic because we meet people of, of different ethnicities, sexualities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, and you realize that like everyone's fighting the same fight. Like we're all we're all human, and so for us to have those experiences, I feel like 
we're doing a disservice to our parents or grandparents by not sharing what we've learned with them. So I actually had a somewhat of an argument with my parents mm-hmm. uh, when we were on a cruise a few months ago. Okay. They wanted to save a seat for my my sister and her, you know, like her family okay. on the cruise ship uh, for like for breakfast one day. It was the last day. It was super crowded. It was like really bad logistics by the cruise company. Everyone's trying to get their last free breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> and to make it worse, we had to check out by something like 7 a.m. Okay. So everyone brought their luggage down. <sighs> and normally people eat in shifts, you know, so it's like some people, like people eat between like 7 and like 10.30. Now every single person was there exactly at 10.30. Because they had to check out. Yeah. So they had to check out. And they had all their luggage. So it was just a madhouse. There's no seats. And we like circled around and we finally found a table. And we were so happy, sat down, and halfway through breakfast, the table next to us opened up. My dad immediately put his stuff down there okay. to claim it for like the rest of our extended family. And I said to my dad, like I said, hey, um, maybe we should leave that seat for someone else that's already here because I don't know when Christina's going to come down. Right. And he's like, but there's, no, there's not going to be a seat when she comes down. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I know, but if everyone here had also claimed the seats next to them for their family members that may or may not come right. down in the next half an hour, we wouldn't have found a seat. Mm-hmm. And it was like a kind of, at first it was a kind of like a big argument because he was like, you should just listen to me. I'm your dad. Sure, I yeah. know what you're doing, you know. But then I, I, I said to him, I said, you know, there's so many great things you've taught me. But at the same time, if there's something that isn't acceptable, kind of like in anymore, anymore like- or in the new kind of like the Modern times. Modern times yeah. or just in you know, a new culture mm-hmm. or American culture. Yeah. Like I should tell you, right? And at first he, he disagreed, but I said, okay, example, spitting on the street is is common and acceptable in China. Okay. Is that, if you know, if you were spitting on the street in San Francisco, would I, would you want me to tell you, hey, don't do that. That's mm-hmm. not acceptable. And he's like, yeah. And I said, that's exactly the same. Yeah. No, it's, it's very true. And I also think like maybe it comes from the whole scarcity thing. Like when else is another seat going to open? And like because of your parents' experiences, maybe that seemed like the right thing to do. And I mean, there's no right or wrong way to do it. But I think, yeah, it's it's our responsibility to be like, hey, like maybe you should think about it this way or approach it this way or like, you know, here or in this time. Like this is not how people do things. And I think, like I said, traveling is really good for that because you are coming into someone else's turf, right? And when I travel, I want to know those things. I don't just want to impose my like American, like this is right standards onto a place because I don't want to offend any of the locals. Of course not. Like someone told me that in Thailand, you can't pat someone on the head. Just Have you heard this? Yeah, yeah. Because your soul lives uh. at the top of your head, apparently. Um, or like, you know, in some cultures, giving someone a thumbs up is giving them the middle finger. Uh, or like at the end of a meal, uh, you know, some places you're supposed to leave a little food or you're supposed to finish it all. Like there are things that are perceived different ways, different places. So there's not like one steadfast rule. And I think those things I always find interesting uh, because there's always a reason for it too. It's not like there's one right way to do it. Exactly. You know, uh, and... It teaches you a lot. It's, it, it is interesting, you know. Yeah. Um, like slurping your food can be good in a place. Slurping your food can be yeah. rude in a place. But I think like when we look at it, we can't just look at the the one thing. We have mm-hmm. to kind of see the whole reason behind it. Like Absolutely. The whole culture behind it. And I think that's what's so cool about travel. I think that's what's kind of opened my eyes so much about who I am, the pros and the cons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've actually realized that having, you know, being grown, like being raised in this Asian American culture has, has a lot of pros and cons for even travel or life. Uh, one thing that I, I think the reason why I don't have that many Asian American friends traveling with me mm-hmm. besides 
my buddy Chris now, which it took four years to convince him to come out, is because just texting him every day. Just yeah, like one little exactly, literally, like, <laughs> literally. Uh, he actually like showed me a, uh, a text message I sent him like four years ago, saying like, "Hey, you should come to JY." And now he's here. And now he's finally Amazing. here. Amazing. So one thing I really like about like the more super Western or, or like the white culture is people are very independent. They're not mm-hmm. as close to their family. You know, it's very, it's a lot easier for them to be like, Oh, I'm just going to take off, move to Asia for a year. Right. It's like the whole, like leaving the nest. Yeah. But I think the, the downsides to that is people are almost a little bit too independent where even though, you know, you're great friends and you know, they're just like, all right, well I'm leaving. Bye. And with no real second thought about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, while like in the Asian culture, it's almost like, those are like your friends. You include them with everything you do. Yeah, it's kind of like the base, right? You always go back to your home base. Of your- yeah. Yeah, it's, it's different to see those those different... And there's something to be said about both of them, right? And I think that growing up Asian-American, you kind of get the best of both worlds, almost. I think it really depends if you actually venture out because sure. I know plenty of Asian-Americans who don't even really speak English that well. And I'm like, you've been living in the US. Because there's no need to. Yeah. yeah. And like you, because you know, if you hang out with nothing but Chinese people, you watch Chinese movies, you yeah. eat Chinese restaurants, you watch Chinese movies. And you can find pockets like that in California there's everywhere. So many. Like, yeah. you just never really get exposed to anything else. Absolutely. My Japanese grandmother uh, doesn't speak a lick of English and she's lived in, in LA for 50 years. Wow. Because uh, she never had to. She was a, a seamstress and worked in a Japanese, like, uh, tailor shop and then all her kids speak Japanese. My mom barely speaks Japanese, but yeah, it's, it's easy enough to do that. And like my father, for example, was born in Los Angeles, but he doesn't have a passport. Uh, he grew up, went to college, got married and had a family in the same 25 mile radius and is happy as a clam. And, you know, we always kind of poke fun at each other just cause like our lives are so different. And like, I can't believe like I'm his daughter, like based on the way he was, he was raised and how he lives his life. But, you know, I think it's because I get to have these experiences. Like I said, it's our, our job to kind of let that trickle back down to the family. And like, it's kind of like, you know, going away from home, but then coming back and reporting on what, what you've learned. Cause I think it can better everybody. Like you said, you get a deeper understanding of yourself and of the world around you. And it, I think it just makes you a kinder person and a more understanding person for sure. <laughs> Cause we know, we all know Asian parents can be not very understanding sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and, a lot of my Asian friends, their excuse on why they don't travel mm-hmm. is because of their parents. And they're like, yeah, you know, Johnny, you're so lucky that your parents are so open-minded. I'm like, what are you talking about? My parents aren't open-minded at all. <laughs> I think the difference is regardless of what they wanted, I would respect it. Mm-hmm. I would listen to them. Yes. I would, I would like, you know, wait under consideration. Yes. But then I would do what ultimately made me happy where I thought right. was right. And in turn, like, I mean, what I always tell myself is, you know, if I'm a parent someday... All, I think all parents want is for their kids to be happy and fulfilled. If like that's what makes you happy, I think that at the end of the day, even if they disagree and would, would want it a certain way, they kind of have to let you do your own thing. And they should be happy that you found success and happiness in your own way. Because, I mean, everyone's definition of that is, is different, right? Like, what is a successful, happy life? I change my definition of that, I'd say, like, once every year. Like, it's always evolving. <laughs> yeah, so that was actually... Uh, I, so I gave a talk at the remote year uh-huh. dinner that last week and that was actually what my talk was about oh. they they called it the, the good life that was the topic mm-hmm. and i think i might actually do a variation of this for the nomad summit this year because i just i, I think there's so many things i could have dove in real deep on but basically i was i was looking at the i compared it to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs yeah. around the very bottom you mm-hmm. have like your basic life needs like shelter, air food. shelter water mm-hmm. things like that uh and i thought okay that's kind of like 
you know, when you start traveling, you don't have any money yet, but you know, as long as you have that, you're mm-hmm. pretty happy. Your bases are covered. Yeah. yeah. And I did that for years. You know, I basically didn't make any money. I was, uh, but I had a place to stay for free and food for free because I worked at a resort. You know, um, it's kind of like your lettering for lunch. Yep. <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> Where totally. no one went around New York and you would hand letter chopper menus. Uh-huh, or was it? Chopper menus. And you would get free lunch for it. Yeah. At like probably really nice restaurants. Right? Yeah. I mean, it was a very fair trade. I had no let- chalk lettering experience. So whatever I wrote, I got to eat, which was, you know, a delight for me and a delight for the restaurants and like a really neatly like packaged up little project that people could understand really easily. And yeah, I, gosh, over the course of a year, ate at maybe 35 or 40 different restaurants. Um, and, you know, New York City's got a not- lot of nice restaurants that have a lot of chalkboards and it was really fun. And more importantly, you got the experience, you got mm-hmm. to practice, and I'm also assuming you took photos of everything so you can build yep. up your portfolio. Totally documented everything. Um, you know, I use Will Letter for Lunch as an example of how with my business, you know, I do hand lettering, but I had always been interested in chalk lettering and I wanted to eventually do it, but didn't really know how. And I was kind of o- always secretly hoping that a client would come along and want me to do that. And then I realized that probably wasn't going to happen. So instead of waiting, I was like, I'm just going to prove that I can do it. So I started this project, started doing it. Like you said, documented it, put it online. And, you know, because it was such a fun idea and an easy to understand idea, it, it went around the restaurant communities and design blogs. And I'd say within like three or four months, I was I started booking paid chalk work because I proved I could do it. And so my advice is always like, you don't have to just wait for it. Uh, wait for an opportunity, like make Make the opportunity. Well, make it happen. Yeah. I like that a lot. And I see that a lot with digital nomads, just that being proactive and being resourceful. Um, like in, at the end of my talk at the Nomad Coffee Club, even if you don't think you're you know, conventionally creative, to be a digital nomad and to challenge the you know conventional nine to five, there takes it's a creative lifestyle for sure. Um, you're figuring out accommodations, you're figuring out what you're going to do for work, and you're really, I don't know, breaking down barriers. And you have to get creative with your way of thinking. And like your income isn't necessarily coming from one paycheck every two weeks anymore. And it's cool. It's exciting. I, I definitely agree. Yeah. And the one, the, the reason why I brought this up is just like how I didn't want to work for free for the rest of my life, yes. or you, you don't want to just, just for barter. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, or you don't want to just have free lunch for your work for the rest of your life. That doesn't take away from that part of our journey being exactly what we needed and yes, what we wanted at the time. For sure. So I think I really want to encourage everyone out there, whatever you guys are in your, in your journey, do that, enjoy the crap out of it, but then always realize then there's that next step. Absolutely. I had a really good chat with a friend about this the other day too. Like, you know, every everything's a build, like building blocks, right? And you, you start out small and then you slowly achieve more and more success, more and more maybe notoriety for your work. And one of my favorite designers, Dana Tadamachi, gave this really amazing talk about, you know, I think we have a tendency because we see so many talented people out there to look at like someone and be like, how do I get there? Like, I really want to have 100,000 Instagram followers or, you know, I really, really want to make six figures or you, you kind of set these benchmarks in your head. But what she was saying was that, you know, in really enjoy the process. Like there is actually a lot of really good stuff that happens. Like anonymity is rare. Like once you make it, you can't turn back and everyone has their eyes on you now. And you almost, you know, you're expected to be successful. Like uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, the woman who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, which was like wildly successful, gives a really good TED talk about how her second book was a flop. And it's really vulnerable to talk about because when you achieve a certain level of success or a certain income level, people expect you to stay there always, right? And like, it's like being a musician coming out with like a number one single. They expect you to keep doing that. And so it can be a good, success is a good thing, but it also like, there's an extra layer of added 
pressure now for me that I personally thrive off of, but it's just like, it's different. <laughs> I, I like how you say that you personally thrive off of it. Cause yes. I think I, I definitely see that, you know, it could be pressure or it can be something else. Yeah. I think for like, I don't know, I guess for me, it's hard for me to be that newbie asking questions again because mm-hmm. people kind of expect me to have all the answers. Right. And you and, don't. And I don't. <laughs> and that's ultimately going to hurt me in the long run. Uh, I think mm-hmm. the only reason why I continue to be successful is because I, my personality, I like trying new things. And when I try something new, I don't mind asking questions because it's new to me. Yeah. So for Curiosity. example, yeah. Like for example, like with, let's say with dropshipping, mm-hmm. because a lot of people already assume I'm the expert on it. I don't want to go into a forum and ask people dumb questions because you know on something that I don't know. You feel because, like you, you don't have the ability to ask anymore because yeah. you're the teacher now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's going to ultimately stunt my growth, and that's why you know I'm you know there's like people who started either after me or some even my students mm-hmm. are making way more than I am with dropshipping now because they continue to learn and grow while I'm like I'm pretty kind of at that level and that's it. Uh, the only good news is. I start new projects and then I give myself permission to ask those you know, new questions. Again. Absolutely. Yeah. Starting something new gives you like, it takes away the expertise, right? And it lo- allows you to do that for sure. I mean, that's so interesting you say that because, you know, I'm about to launch a new course and I, ideally you do want your students to outperform you, right? Because that means you're teaching something right. Yeah, definitely. But that's such a scary idea thinking like, yeah, like you don't really have permission to ask questions anymore. And but I, I think I have to yeah. take my own advice, like community over competition always, mm-hmm. like, there is enough space in the dropshipping market and the design field for multiple successes to happen. Yeah. Or we can just, I guess, get maybe get over our own ego and sure. say, you know what, let's keep asking questions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah like, for who cares? sure. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, or I, I guess, you know, I used to ask questions, mm-hmm. but instead of asking them, on, like, let's say on a public Facebook group, I have friends now that I know are successful, so maybe I'll, I'll ask them. Yeah, or like uh, mentors. I'm sure you still, yeah. even though you're, you've worked your way up, I'm sure you still have mentors. Yeah, definitely. There's always I do. someone, what did my dad always say? He said, there's always someone who knows something that you don't know. Yeah. And you, if you look at life that way and you are always curious and you're always asking questions. Yeah. I mean, all you need to know to teach is just know a little bit more than someone else. Right. Like yeah. I always thought that too. Like, you know, I, oh, I can't teach a course cause I'm not an expert, but like expert expertise is relative. Right. Mm-hmm. So like I could be an expert compared to someone who's a beginner and then someone else could yeah. be an expert compared to me. And I think a lot of times it's, we actually can teach better when we just want two steps ahead of someone else because we still understand and it's more relatable yeah yeah we understand like the struggles where they came you know came from and it's a great point they see that you're not like that much ahead so it's like they can catch up it's attainable yeah for sure yeah that's a really great point because that's i think that's kind of who i'm targeting with my course is someone who was in my position a couple years ago just feeling burnt out and that's good i i'm gonna take that little tidbit there you go store it in the archives what's the next course that you're coming out with so the next course I'm coming out with, so I have a lettering course on Skillshare. I have an illustration course on Brit Co. But I basically, I think you would ask me this. I, I came to Chiang Mai because I heard this is where people come to work. And uh, I'm traveling with a videographer. And basically, we spent the last two months like writing, filming, and producing an online like, creative boot camp of sorts. And it's basically, it's exciting and scary for me. It's outlining my entire creative process, uh, how I've marketed my work, how I've gotten clients, like broken every step down for someone to follow suit. Um, And I'm really excited to see if it works for other people because I honestly do believe, like, I think the last question at my Nomad uh, Coffee Club talk was, do you have any marketing tips? Uh, How do I get my work out there? You know, whether it's creative or not. And my answer was my, like, best advice for marketing is no marketing because I honestly think that, yeah, you can have a perfectly targeted Facebook ad or Instagram ad or have something pop up right at the right moment. 
But there's really nothing, or, you know, get space in someone's inbox. There's nothing more powerful than your best friend texting you, oh my God, you got to see this, or you would love this. Um, the same way, like you said, it took someone to recommend the four hour work week or just, you know, introduce you to drop shipping. I think that having that, uh, you know, friend vouch for whatever it is, is super, super powerful. And that's what I, you know, aim to infuse my work with is just the shareability. And like you mentioned before, like I am online a lot and I just, I pay attention to what is, is trendy, but then kind of flip it to make it my own. And, you know, now that I've launched a couple of passion projects that have done really well, I'm a little more cognizant of like, okay, like I can almost like reverse engineer it. Where like, if I have a project, I'm like, okay, what, what is the headline for this that a blog might write? Like you know, designer trades letter for like, you know, lettering for lunch. That's great. Um, like, and so one of my tips is like, can your project idea or business be summed up in a headline? Like what would they write about it? Is it exciting? Is it not? Like, <laughs> I think that's such a great advice. And I think even though you, you don't think you're a great business person, you really are. <laughs> Thank but you. What more than that, you create good content first. And I think that's the same with me. Like I've never taken any ads out for any of the mm-hmm. things I do besides like e-commerce is different. Like sure. I want to sell a table, yeah. I have to take an ad for that. But like for my blog, my podcast, I've never taken any paid advertising. Amazing. And it's exactly what you're describing where I create good content that I know people would want to share. Yes. And, you know, I appreciate everyone sharing it. So Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, your audience, even if it's small, like they're your best tool for sure. And like to build trust and credibility, like it's, there's definitely an art to it. I, I definitely agree yeah. with that. So one thing I, I wanted to, to quickly talk about was uh-huh. remote year. Yeah. <laughs> what, was, what was your experience with that? Why did you sign up and what was that like? Yeah. So I uh, was part of remote year two. So the second program that they ever launched. Uh, so I originally started traveling with them. For those of you who don't know what remote year is, it's a 12 month program where you travel to a different country every month. Uh, they set everything up for you. So travel, accommodation, co-working space, um, and a little bit of like networking infrastructure stuff when you get there. Uh, so kind of like a guided world tour, uh, aimed at people who still want to work during the year. Uh, I signed up for it because I had previously been traveling, uh, planning a, a world trip with my best friend, but she dropped out at the last minute and I had this big plan, no one to go with. And I was honestly like a little hesitant. Like I am a confident person, but to travel the world alone for a year sounded a little scary. So my uh, boyfriend at the time had shown me remote year. He was like, this looks exactly like exactly what you want. And I was like, hell yeah. And so I signed up, I got an interview and I got accepted and I started traveling with them. I can't believe your <laughs> boyfriend was like, yeah, go ahead and travel for 12 months. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> yeah. Well, so he was, he was going to leave to travel too. So uh, I think we would have broken up regardless, but yeah, I mean, I appreciate that though. Like someone encouraging me to do that. And I think that your twenties, like I kind of had this moment why I left New York was like, this is my time to do it. Like inevitably as I get older, I'm going to have more responsibility. I might want a dog. I might want like a serious boyfriend. Like you really, there are certain things that you can't do as well when you travel, right? Traveling with a pet sounds like a pain in the butt. I'm not going to do that. I'm not about to buy a second ticket for my pet. And so I realized that and I was like, yeah, I'm 25 years old. I may as well just go for it. Um, I saw a lot of other people doing it and remote years seemed to be a good structure to do that within. I traveled with them for six months and then departed on my own because I think I had seen remote years like I'm going to get my sea legs with them and then I'm going to go out on my own. And I just got my sea legs a little sooner than I thought. Because um, once you're in it, you realize it's not that hard. Like you were talking about, like it seems like such a daunting task to move to Chiang Mai and set up a life here. But once you're here, you realize that it's not 
Sasha Produce, so especially bad. places like Chiang Mai. Especially, yeah. But the reason why I like Mimo Ear is because they take you to places that you would never go on your own. This is also true. Like, I don't know if I necessarily would have gone to La Paz, Bolivia, or like Montevideo, yeah, Uruguay. So, so where did you start, and, and what started, were those six months like? Started in South America, in uh, Uruguay, then we went to Buenos Aires in Argentina, uh, La Paz, Bolivia, Cusco, Peru, and then jumped over to London, and then Prague, and then I split after that. Um, it was a really cool uh, thing. It was just... I can always considered myself like a super extrovert and traveling with 75, like primarily Westerners, I felt like I was like in freshman year of college. <laughs> and so it's just, it's, it really is in every sense, like a social experiment to be thrown into a, you know, tight knit group of 75 people that you're supposed to like, you know, operate as a little community. Uh, it was good, but it also was a little too party centric. And like, I totally get why, like you're in a new place every month. Like there's a welcome party. There's a goodbye party. There's networking events in the middle. And so, you know, the intentions I had kind of, this sounds very hippy dippy, but yeah, the intentions I had set for myself before I left, I was like, I want to be more productive, more creative, healthier, just like, and have a clearer outlook on what, you know, makes for a happy life for me. And I woke up four months in like with a, you know, sharp hangover. And I was like, I've been drinking for the last four months. I, I continue with this group, like your environment absolutely dictates your day to day. And I just didn't think I could be my most, all those values I had leaving weren't getting accomplished. So I, I personally removed myself from the situation. Yeah. There's nothing, it's not a criticism of remote year. It's just, that was how the group happened to be structured. For I, us. I can see that. <laughs> so I think if your goals for next year are to get in the best shape of your life yep. or even be like the most productive, yeah. I wouldn't sign up for it. Yes. But if you want kind of an easy Experiment. handheld yeah. experience Absolutely. where you are thrown into a group where you're guaranteed to meet other cool people mm -hmm. who also want to travel. You're guaranteed to see some new cool places. I would do that. Yeah. I think especially if you're in your early 20s. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the average age in our group was 28, um, which sounds just about right to me. And yeah, I mean, I don't regret doing it. I met a couple really cool people who like we all still keep in touch. And I think the, the big selling point of Remote Year is the introduction of the people, right? You... Digital, being a digital nomad is, I'd say, in a conventional sense, like not very mainstream. It's still pretty, like, pretty out there for, for the average person, even though, like, now that we're in it, everyone seems like a digital nomad and why not? But yeah, it was nice to, like, have that community and be with people who kind of held the same values. And there is something I've noticed, like, I, I get along really well with travelers because there's a certain mindset you need to be a traveler, right? You need to be adaptable. You need to be curious. You need to be, uh, you know, more open-minded than the average person, I would say. So I tend to gel well with those people. Um, but yeah, there's definitely an audience for it. Uh, it's, I think it's best for someone who maybe is still working at like a nine to five job, but remotely, because there are different kinds of remote work. You can still be logged into someone's hours, like in the West, on the West Coast, for example. It's a good structure to work within, for sure. Um, I think if you're a freelancer and you're, you know, it doesn't matter what time you work or where you work, I think that's a great job because oh it'll probably end up costing less than just living in New York or California, especially Absolutely. New York. I mean, yeah, we talked about this too. Like, you know, coming from San Francisco, come, me, me coming from New York City, people are always like, oh, like, I wish I could do what you do. It's so aspirational. And I'm just like, it's cheaper than living in New York. Like traveling the world, I never thought I would say this, but traveling the world, even with flights and food and everything, my cost of living is maybe still maybe 75, at, at the most, if I'm in like a European city, 75% of what I was paying in New York. And like, I'm living well, like I'm not, I'm not backpacking. I'm not budget traveling. I'm just kind of, but I'm not like, you know, balling out all the time, but except for right now, except for right now, yeah. I'm balling out. <laughs> so we are in Lauren's uh, loft apartment. <laughs> 
which has a view of Doisy Tep Mountain. Mm. It's beautiful, like a really nice city yeah. view. Uh, it's a two story loft, huge mm. living room. Uh, it's it's like a very modern, nice place. It has a rooftop pool. Yep. You know, Bar it's a good location. Too, yeah, yeah, good location. So, yeah. what do you pay for this? Uh, so this apartment is nineteen thousand baht per month, which is just under six hundred US dollars okay. per month. And, and what were you paying in New York? Uh, in New York City, I was paying. $1,600 a month for a small one-bedroom apartment way, way out in Brooklyn. And then I moved, was paying $1,400 a month for a bedroom and a two-bedroom apartment in like the heart of, you know, Brooklyn, uh, Williamsburg, which is like a trendy area. Uh, so this is still like, this is about a third of what I was paying okay. in New York. And an apartment like this in New York City would easily rent $4,000 a month. Yeah, especially in a good area. <laughs> like, so she is basically just a few blocks north of the coolest area <laughs> so imagine you being you know let's say let's say 10 blocks north of east village yes in a beautiful giant loft apartment with yep. a nice view florida ceiling windows mm. balcony <laughs> yeah this would easily cost <laughs> yeah four thousand dollars a month for sure and that's just for rent that's just for rent yeah and i mean that's i think that's the hard part about it's, it's a good and bad thing about new york is that your rent is so expensive, but then if you if you want to do stuff in New York, you know, if you want to go see a show or you want to go try a new restaurant, it it's pretty pricey. Like my friends and I always joke, like you know, on a night out in New York, you could easily spend a couple hundred dollars, and not even on like a fancy night out, dinner, drinks, like taxi ride home. It really does add up over time, and you know, salaries in New York are higher, but that is because the cost of living is so high there. So so far today, it's already two ten. Uh huh. I've spent $3 today. <laughs> and that includes me going out to lunch with a friend. We had some bone oh, broth soup, which is like nice yeah. paleo style totally. soup, which if you went to like Hugh, Min, like, was it Hugh restaurant in New York? It's like a paleo restaurant. Yep. It would have been $13. Uh, I got us two uh, coconut, coconut milk, milk yep. Americanos, which these would have been like six bucks each yep. in New York. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh no. Yeah. yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. And as things are cheaper here, it, it just, like you can do whatever you want to do and have no responsibilities, which I love. Absolutely. And I mean, especially like if anyone who's watching is creative, one of the biggest things I've learned this year and, you know, probably one of the reasons why I most likely will not set up base back in New York, maybe somewhere else in the States. But, you know, as a creative, if in New York, it was it was great because you have access to all these, you know, design organizations and you're at the forefront. But it's a lot of pressure to have to make seven, eight thousand dollars a month just to like live OK. Uh, and so, you know, if you come to a place like Chiang Mai or, you know, I was in Prague, Prague before this and just the cost of living is so much lower when there's not as much pressure to have to make ends meet, you really can be more creative and be more experimental with your business and your style. And it's pretty liberating, to be honest, like a $50,000 salary in New York City, you're barely scraping by. If you're making 50,000 US dollars working remotely in Chiang Mai, you can have the world. Yeah, and you could have $40,000 in the bank at the yes. end of the year. And so saving money is a big thing too. And this is something that creatives don't necessarily talk about because like I said, creatives and money, like they don't go together. Having a financial like fallback or cushion is has been so important to me being able to find success because without that nagging doubt of like, oh my God, I'm going to crash and burn. Like I can take a month off and just paint if I want for a month, which is amazing. Uh, and so... You know, I read a really interesting article about a couple who paid off all of their student debt by moving to Bali for a couple of years, which sounds like a dream, right? That's a great headline, actually. Yeah, move to a tropical island, like make an average salary, but 
you know, save 80% of it and yeah. just put the rest of it, you know, towards living expenses. And then this, whatever you save goes towards your debts. Like it's actually kind of like, I hate the term, but it's like, yeah, it's like a life hack. You really, you know, I, can get around I, I the system. F- I think $40,000 in student loans mm-hmm. after UC Irvine. Yep. And I moved to Kotel, a little scuba diving yep. island. And because my rent was 150 or maybe it was 200, oh gosh. 200 something dollars yep. a month. To live on an island. On, on an island. Like a block and a half from the beach. Yep. You know, it was like, you know, very basic bamboo hut mm-hmm. with a hammock, but I was very happy, okay. especially at that point in my life. I was so happy doing it. All I, you know, all I had to do every day is wake up, go scoop your like, which is why I wanted to do anyways. Of course. And I was able to pay off all my student loans within a few years just by having my extra, you know, just like whatever extra money I had from things like unemployment. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> be able to just, I, instead of using that money to travel mm-hmm. or stay in luxury places, I just said, you know what, let me just, you know, live cheaply and just pay this off. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's it's always that, you know, psychological grass is greener thing. People look at someone living, you know, an island life and think that that's aspirational, for, you know, from their cubicle in New York City and, and vice versa. But travel can actually be a smart way to save money. You just have to be willing to take that leap and, like, get out of your comfort zone and, like, yeah, maybe you don't speak mm-hmm. the language or maybe you don't know what it's going to be like, but you can save a shit ton of money yeah, from I a like financial it. aspect. <clears throat> yeah. But one thing I kind of want to leave with people too is even though you're comfortable traveling cheap, that I think it's a very, very good idea to also think kind of like the big picture Mm -hmm. and be able to make, you know, those big paychecks. Absolutely. And have like a legitimate business where if you wanted to, you could live back in New York and have a good life or you can continue traveling. And it's not like a forced thing. Yeah. I don't think anyone wants to be like a budget backpacker forever. Mm. Um, Or maybe they do. Who knows? But yeah, I think that's a great point that you make. Like being location independent, like ideally means you can be wherever you want. And I'll leave you guys with this quote from my very wise father too. He always told me, you know, money, money can never buy you happiness, but it does give you options. And that is something that stuck with me my entire life. And kind of the basis of my whole like financial philosophy is like, I want to make more money so I can do whatever I want. Like, and so I can help whoever I want. And really you have more control <clears throat> over your life. Like I can live in New York or I could live, you know, in Kopi P and, uh, you know, scuba dive every day. That sounds great too. And just to have, or to be able to just book a flight on a whim and just kind of get out when you need to. I think that's really important. I forget who wrote it, but someone, I read a really great thing about this woman encouraging every, everyone to have a fuck it fund, which is a great way to phrase it, you know, five or $10,000. So if life really shits on you one day, you can just say, fuck it and move somewhere else or try something new and to leave a bad job, relationship city. Like it's, I, I like it. And I think most people don't realize this, but all of you guys do have five or $10,000. Even if you don't have it in the bank, mm-hmm. sell all your crap, yeah, yeah. sell your car, sell all your clothes, sell all the crap you bought that you probably shouldn't have. That you thought you needed. Yeah. That you can easily replace if you, if you ever go back Absolutely. Uh, and just take a chance, you know, it's, it's worth it. Yeah, look, we're sitting here. We're fine. Hi, mom. Hi, dad. Like, yeah, we're living, breathing proof that like two Asian Americans with tattoos who are like living an alternative lifestyle can like thrive. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I like it. <laughs> so here's to your success. But oh, thank you. More importantly, to, to taking these big Cheers. chances. Uh, <laughs> thank you guys all for listening uh, to this week's episode if people want to find out more about you or find out the new course you're making how can they reach you uh you can go to homsweethom.com so h-o-m sweet h-o-m uh or you can find me on instagram just homsweethom yeah <laughs> that's me i'm all over the internet okay i like it and if you guys want to check out this week's blog post it's called it's on johnnyft.com and it's called 
17 lessons I learned from traveling to 17 countries this year. I like it. So check that out. And Lauren, thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I will see all of you guys next week. Bye. Peace out. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.